0: So here now the very Word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 6th chapter and reading verses 37 and 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down. Shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Our dear Lord, there's an awful lot packed in here, and I pray that we will be able to move through it uh, quick enough, but at the same time that... Your meaning here will be grasped. Every single one of us recognize what you're saying um, to Christians, to believers, and, and how this should resonate with us, which, with each and every one of us. Lord, we will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Science tells us that DNA which, by the way, I know that you all know that that stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. Um, but nonetheless, it never was a household word like it is now, but um, DNA is the blueprint that determines who we are, how we grow, what we look like, what our behavioral traits are, etc., etc., But what science doesn't, I I think, realize is we are not just physical bodies, our DNA doesn't completely define us, we are also spiritual bodies. And so I want to talk this morning about Kingdom DNA, and I'm using that as an analogy. And let me explain a little bit of how I'm using it. I'm not a scientist, so I'm not using it in a strictly scientific way. I'm using it more in its popular or colloquial sense. And when we talk about, when we talk about something that is intrinsic to our nature, that is really very much ingrained in us, we often will say, well, it's in our DNA to describe the fact that it, it, it is inherent in who we are. Well, that's really the way that I want to use it, but I want to use it in a spiritual sense as as sort of of an analogy, if you will. And, and, and this is what I mean. When we are born, we are born into a natural fallen state. And so I would say we have fallen DNA. In other words, we have certain intrinsic characters. We're at enmity with God. We want to be our own little gods. We want to do things our own way. We are inherently sinful. That is ingrained into who we are. But something extraordinary happens when Jesus moves into our hearts, when we are born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus, when we are regenerated, when the old soul is removed and a new soul is put in. Well, all of a sudden we have a new spiritual DNA. I mean, there are certain characteristics that are intrinsic and actually necessary and essential to what it means to be a Christian and they come with the regeneration. And and, and the reason I'm using this analogy is because that's the way I see what Jesus is expressing to us here, what Luke is bringing out, actually what he has been bringing out for quite some time now. And I don't have time to go into all the context because it's building up on us, but Luke has indeed been revealing that there's a, a whole new set of, of attributes and behavior that goes with those who are born again. First of all, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He introduced us to the king of the kingdom of heaven, the Messiah. Jesus. He talked about the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel itself, and now Jesus is teaching us the ethics of the kingdom. In fact, if we go back to the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, we know that Jesus started it out with what we call the Beatitudes, four wheels, good things, blessings, and then four woes, the way that Luke gives us. Well, those four Beatitudes, as we discussed and studied at the time, they they define the spiritual DNA of a born-again person, someone who is poor in their spirit and knows they need saving, someone who is hungering for righteousness, someone who weeps over their sin, and someone who the world hates because when they look at you and they see Your spiritual DNA, your kingdom DNA, they hate you because they hate Jesus. And those are all signs of who you are, intrinsic in a born-again Christian. Well, Jesus goes on and he begins to talk about kingdom ethics. And the kingdom ethics that he tells us about are not kingdom ethics that are peculiar to fallen DNA. I mean, you can't keep it. It's peculiar to your redeemed self. Things like loving your enemies and doing good things to the people who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who are actively abusing you. He teaches uh, his disciples that if someone hits you on one side of your face, give them the other side. No retaliation. When someone gyps you out of your outer garment, give them your underwear. Because actually, the Lord is the one who is going to protect you and take care of you. If someone imposes themselves upon you and wants something from you, give freely. Because your Father is the one who gives. And even if someone steals from you, robs your stuff, don't go pursue it and get all wrapped up in the things of this world. Because you have work to do for the kingdom. Jesus has given us some some standards that the, of a fallen uh, individual simply cannot possibly hope to keep. So there uh, uh, we, we talked about our redeemed self being the self that was going to respond to that. Well, then Jesus began to talk about something even more difficult. He began to talk about motives and why we do what we do. It's not enough just to do these things. You have to do it with the right heart. You have to do it with the right motivations. And so he asks some questions. What good is it if you only love those who love you? Because even a noble pagan does that. What benefit, what grace is that that you're expending? So, I mean, if you only do good to those who do good to you, I mean, what are you doing different than anyone else? And if you only lend when you expect something in return... Where's the benefit in that? And so he approaches the very motives. I mean, motives are grounded in our spiritual kingdom DNA. Well, I want to slow down just a wee bit because we're getting to a point that is sort of a transition into our text this morning. And that's the 35th and the 36th verses that are right before this. Because in the 35th verse, this is what Jesus says. Love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Now, we made a big deal about that. We talked about the motives of reciprocity, motives that expected something in return. We're going to talk about that again this morning in just a moment. But we, he says that when you do these things, do them with no self-involved, selfless For the kingdom of God. He goes on and says, your reward will be great, talking about your reward in heaven. And of course, that reward cannot be our goal or our motivation or else we've just ruined the whole thing. And then finally, he says, because in this you'll be sons of the most high, sons and daughters of the most high, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You will reflect your father. And he gives us the motivation for doing everything that we do. It is for the glory of God. And then he summarizes all this by saying, and this is going to be very important because this sets the tone for what he's about to say. He said, therefore, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. You who have received so much grace, you who have received so much mercy, you should be the one who is merciful to others. This is the very foundation Of what it means to be a born-again Christian. This needs to be inherent, brothers and sisters. It needs to be there. It needs to be in your spiritual DNA. And if it's not, then you need to ask yourself why it's not there. And let's delve into that a little bit more closely as we go into our text for this morning. Let me just give you a quick overview. Jesus gives us four imperatives. Four statements as commands. He says to not judge. He says to not condemn. And then he gives us two of them in a positive sense, forgive and then to give. Now, we need to recognize something about these imperatives because they have been twisted so horribly by our culture, we need to kind of set the stage before we delve into them. Now, I've got to get technical for just a moment, but stay with me. I'm not going to be technical very long. I need to get technical as far as the nature of these particular imperatives. Dr. Sproul says in his um, commentary, these are what are known as apodictic laws. You can forget that word as soon as you hear it. They're not apodictic laws, but rather they are casuistic. There's a difference between two kinds of laws. The first one is a moral absolute, an absolute universal law that applies to all people. We just read ten of them when we read the Ten Commandments. We read them, and they are universal laws. God says, do not murder. And as I said in my prayer earlier, it doesn't matter whether it is your body or your choice, It's still murder. You know, that's universal, applies to every single person. But these are not universal, absolute moral statements. They are what are known as casuistic. And casuistic laws are best practice. These are the best way to be, the best way to live. And I'm going to explain why these are not moral absolutes in the way that Jesus says them, even though... They might seem that way to you, and even though they have certainly been interpreted in that way by the culture. The second thing that I want you to remember before we jump into this is who Jesus is talking to, who his audience is. When we go back to the beginning of this, we know that this is Luke's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is up in the hills around Capernaum someplace, probably a a flat place in between a couple of hilltops. And he is teaching a vast multitude. He's just chosen his twelve apostles to be, and they're probably clustered right around him. Around them, a whole host of other disciples following Jesus, and around them, a great multitude. Now back in the 20th verse, we learn that Jesus fixes his eyes upon his disciples. So those are the ones initially that he's talking to. It doesn't mean he's not talking to the vast multitude. But primarily these are words in the mouth of the master designed to be directed at his followers, his disciples. Let me tell you what they are not designed to be. These are not designed to be words in the mouths of egregious sinners trying to justify their sin by stating them. That's not the way they're intended. That's not the kind of imperatives that they are. So with that said, let's jump into them. We have four again. Two negatives, two don'ts, and two do's, if you will. First of all, he says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Now, the word that he uses here for judge is important because it's different from the word he uses for condemn, although they're very close with each other. The word he uses for judge, is, it, it is a broad word. It can mean various things. But the way it is used here speaks of the process of judging the process whereby an opinion is made. If a judge is sitting in judgment in a court, well, then arguments are going to be presented pro and and, uh, pro and con as far as the one who is being judged. Well, before condemnation, before judgment is passed, there's going to be an opinion that is going to come out. Well, that's the word that is used, or that's the way the word is used, is that don't form this opinion. It speaks of discernment, actually. Now, most of you know this. Most of you know that the culture around us has latched on to this for years and years and years. The, the, most, the best known verse in Scripture amongst non-believers and non-Bible readers was what? John 3.16. Everybody knew John 3.16. Now, what is it? It's this one. Judge not or else you'll be judged. Your own Bible says, don't judge me. You have to be tolerant. You have to accept me for what I am. And if you do, you're going to be judging me. Oh my goodness. They don't want to say that. They have no idea what they're saying. They're condemning themselves to hell right then and there. We'll bring that out in a little while. Because they don't want to say that, but that's what they say. But nonetheless, that's not what Jesus is saying. So, what, what is it? let's take a look, and we're going to do this with each one of these four. Let's take a look, first of all, at what Jesus is not saying, and then we'll take a look at what he is saying so that we get a better understanding. What he is not saying is that this is a moral absolute. This is not an apodictic law. It isn't. Because if it was, what would that mean? If this was a moral absolute, it would mean that there were no judgments that could be made anywhere. There could be no courts. There could be no civil courts. There could be no criminal courts. There could be no Supreme Court. We could not make any judgment. You could not have church discipline. No judgments could be made anywhere because God had just given us a a, a moral absolute. That's not what Jesus means. It is not a moral absolute. This is best practice because we know that Jesus has taught us clearly that we are to be discerning. And to be discerning means you form a right opinion on something. Out of the book of Matthew, Jesus puts it this way. He says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. How are you going to be wise as a serpent if you don't make discernments? If you don't make judgments? When Matthew gives us, the he starts out the chapter with this statement, judge not lest you also be judged. Within six verses, he says this, or Jesus says this, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before swine. Well, how are you going to know if a person's a dog or a swine if you don't judge, if you don't have some degree of discernment? Jesus goes on to make it absolutely clear in the book of John, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus actually instructs us to judge. So obviously this is not a moral absolute. And you really don't have to read very far in Scripture to recognize that Jesus judged I mean, I've given you a ton of references in your in your bulletin. But Jesus was... I mean, read the 23rd chapter of Matthew and tell me Jesus doesn't make judgments. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides of the blind. You're blind fools. I mean, how, how do you say something like that unless you are indeed judgment? And did Jesus ever... Negate divine judgment. Did he ever say anywhere that there was not going to be any divine judgment for anyone? Of course not. In fact, Jesus taught us more about divine judgment than anyone else in the New Testament. He talked more about hell. I mean, he says things like this. He says, these will go away into eternal punishment. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. John, he says, now is the judgment of this world. I mean, over and over again. Jesus talks about the necessity of, or the reality of divine judgment. And he even instructs us in Matthew 18, when he talks about how to deal with problems within the church, he instructs us how, how, how to judge. And, 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 and actually, over and over again, he says, beware of false prophets, One place in Matthew, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, so I made my point. The scripture does not preclude us from judging. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, to talk about what Jesus is saying, he's not telling us not to be discerning. He's telling us how to be discerning. And and, and for that reason, we need to keep this in context. I mean, what have we just learned? What has Jesus just taught us? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who are actively abusing you. And, and, And he says, and he gives us the reasons, and he says that the reason for this is because what benefit is it to you if you do not? Because your Father in heaven does that. So in other words, when we are discerning, we reflect our Father in heaven. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. So that's the reason that you are judging. What he's saying is don't be judgmental. He's saying don't be heartless and cruel and compassionless and, 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 and too strict as far as your judgments are concerned. Remember, God is merciful. That God, if you are the sons and daughters of the Most High, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He's just said that. So keep it in his context. What he wants is, he doesn't want us to not be judging. He wants us to not be judgmental. He wants us to not be making judgments based on external appearances. And so, therefore, he isn't telling us that uh, all we have to do is is, is be tolerant of everyone. No. In fact, what he wants us to do is judge according to God's standards, not our own, not the world's. We don't look around us and we say that this is the way we judge. We judge according to God's standards, and we judge as God judges with love and compassion and understanding. And he goes on, and he, he, very close to this, he says... Do not condemn, or condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Well, the word that he uses now doesn't speak about the process. Remember, that's what the judging word did. It talks about making an opinion. But now he talks about the outcome. A judge, when he's in court, will listen to the arguments for and against, as I said. But ultimately, after forming an opinion as far as the guilt or the innocence of the person on trial... He will make a judgment. He, he, he will make a, a, either a positive acquittal or a condemnation for which there is punishment. And that's what Jesus is taught. That's the word he's using. And so now he's saying, don't be condemning in the sense that, um, um, that you're condemnatory. We'll get to what he is saying in, in a moment. But what, what he's not saying here, again, is that there is never a time for us to be condemning. Because Scripture speaks very strongly about the fact that there is condemnation. It it is not, you know, people would like to say, there is therefore now no condemnation for anyone, right? That's not what Paul says. But there is condemnation, and it, it is both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned, Psalm 34 says. Matthew says, by your words you will be justified, and by your words... You will be condemned. Jesus in John 3, after telling Nicodemus all about the being born again, he says, whoever believes in the Son of Man is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus is not saying that there is no condemnation by far. But what he is saying, once again, is don't be condemnatory. Don't look down your long, pious noses in your self-righteousness and make judgments and condemnations based on external evidence or presuppositions or prejudices. That that is unacceptable in in a kingdom context. It it, it is the same as judgment was. It is not to be ruthless or compassionless or heartless in the way that you condemn others. I mean, after all, brothers and sisters, we live in a country... Where when a person goes to trial here in a criminal trial, they are innocent until they are proven guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. Okay? You have to. If you've been on a jury, you know this is strict instructions. You have to approach that entire trial with the complete understanding that to start off with, that person standing trial is innocent. It's only after they're proven guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt that they can be condemned. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's much more so with Christians. Who are we to condemn others based on external evidence, based on external appearances? Who are we? We who have been <laughs> given such grace. Where's your grace? Remember, Jesus says that. Where, where's your grace? What benefit is this to you? If you only love those who love you, and so therefore uh, we, we 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 do not condemn in that way. Um, the um, uh, I, I guess one one of the best examples of this that I can come up with is James. Remember what James tells us right at the very beginning of his letter? He talks about a worship service like this one, and a really poor man comes in, and they treat him terribly. They make him sit on the floor in somebody's feet, you know. Then a rich man comes in who's probably one of those who's oppressing them and they fawn over him and treat him like a king. James says this is unacceptable within a Christian context. We do not do that. We are not condemnatory in that sense. We are not going to make judgments upon people based on their external appearance or what we might think about them, our presuppositions or our prejudices because we have received such mercy and such grace. That is not the way that it can possibly be. Now, those are the two negatives and very closely associated. Now he's going to go to a positive, forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, when we talk about forgiveness, forgiveness is, it assumes guilt, or it assumes a wrongdoing. It it assumes a transgression has been made against the ethical standards under which you live. And it's the forgiveness of that. It means that you will neither be judged nor condemned based on what you have done, even though you could be judged and condemned. We're talking now about mercy and grace and the whole idea of forgiveness. Now, we need to be very careful here because we need to make sure that we do not look at the way these words are worded and think that Jesus is talking about a absolute moral statement. Because if he was, if this was a moral absolute, then he would have just designated a different way to salvation. You you, you see, your forgiveness is predicated on whether or not you forgive someone else. So that's works-based, folks. That's a works-based method of salvation. And Paul makes it clear in Ephesians when he says that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So there, there's no one who is going to be saved because, or, or no one who's going to be forgiven because they forgive someone else. And in fact, brothers and sisters, let me, just, let, me, let me just pause a little bit here and, and reiterate something I said earlier. You, you don't want this. Okay? You don't want this to be a moral absolute. Because if this is a moral absolute, you're going to hell. And I am too. Because every single one of us has failed at some time in our life to forgive someone. And if our forgiveness is dependent upon our forgiving everyone we've ever come in contact with, well, then every single one of us is condemned. Is just also like that person, that pagan who tells you, Judge not, lest you also be judged. You don't want to say that because you've just judged me. So you have just condemned yourself. You have just sent yourself to hell because you have established that as a moral absolute. You don't want to do that. Because we're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace. Grace of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. And it also, you know something, if we were to make this a moral absolute, as some people do, and struggle with, why, you know, what, what is Jesus saying? Um, we would actually, and, and I, I, I say this, advisedly we we would make God a liar if we were to say that because it would mean that we are not going to be forgiven by the work of his messiah and he promised that we would be he promised that salvation would be by the forgiveness of sins and jeremiah he says this talking about the messiah talking about jesus coming for i will forgive their iniquity and i will remember their sin no more okay that wouldn't be true if indeed it was up to you to forgive others for you to be forgiven. Same thing Isaiah says beautifully. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We need to, to, to bring scripture into these things before we worry about them. Because when Jesus makes a statement like this. And we say well you know forgive and you will be forgiven. Well what if I don't forgive that means I won't be forgiven. That's not at all what he says. What did Paul say? For there is therefore now what? No condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? There's no condemnation. So therefore, it doesn't depend on whether we forgive someone else as to whether or not we are going to be forgiven. If it did, it would just bring All of this um, askew and, and none of it would actually work. It would mean God was breaking his promises. Once again, brothers and sisters, let me reiterate. Jesus is not talking forgiveness for salvation here. He's not talking about forgiveness of of. Um, sinners uh, who are pagans, who are unbelievers, who begin to believe, and now he's forgiving. He's not talking about a path to salvation at all. He's talking to believers. He's talking to you and me. And what he is saying is that if you want to reflect your Father who is in heaven, if you are a son or a daughter of God Most High, who is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, and you want to be merciful to those who are merciful, you who have been forgiven so much, you need to forgive others. You need to have a forgiving spirit. You need to forgive first before you do anything else. That forgiveness is absolutely um, important. You remember like what we said earlier when Jesus said in each one of those motives, when he says, what good is it to you if you do this? What benefit? And that word we talked about was grace. What grace is it to you? Because you have been given such grace, are you not going to extend that grace to other people in the same way? This is indeed the clear teaching of Scripture. Um, remember the woman that Jesus, um, uh, this is kind of jumping into a, another subject. Remember the woman that Jesus was, he was at a, a house of a Pharisee, I think it was Simon. Uh, it, it, but, but anyway, he's there reclining at table and a woman comes up behind him and starts to cry and weep and, and, and wash his feet with her tears and, and then dry him with her hair. And a Pharisee got really upset at him and said, you know, if, if if he knew who was doing this, the nature of this woman of ill repute who's doing this, he wouldn't let her do it. And that's when Jesus said this. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he is for who is forgiven little loves little. So in other words, there's a correlation that Jesus is making here between your forgiving spirit, your forgiving heart, and the blessings that he's about to talk about in just a moment, the blessing that God showers upon those who reflect him and glorify him when you're forgiving like he is in the same way you bring glory to God. Well, The last one that he says is also a positive one, and he says, give and it will be given to you. And the lid comes off a Pandora's box. Um, The the cat's out of the bag, I guess, if you say that. Now, if if you're paying attention, you probably are going to ask me, well, Pastor Kirby, haven't I heard you on your soapbox calling out against the health and wealth gospel folks? In fact, just last after church, if you were here, I, I got on my soapbox and, and I said, can you believe, uh, I mean, we're talking about the motives of reciprocity, you know, requiring something in return. And, and I said that one of the favorite things for those health and wealth gospel teachers to say is that if you shovel to God, he'll shovel back with a bigger shovel, right? And if you're paying attention, you may ask me, well, okay, Pastor Kirby, so what's the difference between what Jesus says here and there? Because actually what Jesus actually says is, he says, give and it will be given to you. Isn't that the same thing? Give and it will be given to you. And I have to admit, yes it is. It is. I mean, they're saying the same thing. But, let's remember what we just read. Look at verse 35. What does Jesus say there? Love your enemies, do good and lend, what? Without expecting anything in return those are the motives of reciprocity if you were here and you remember I made the point that motives are everything you can do exactly the same things and if your heart is wrong and if your motives are wrong then it's a sin where on the other hand it could be a virtue now yes God showers blessings upon those who are faithful to him he does that but If that's your purpose, if that's your motive, the motives of the health and wealth gospel are greed... Give to God and he will give back to you. You want more than you need to give more. That's greed. Now what you might be doing is, is not focusing in on the ones that you are giving to. But you've redirected that reciprocity of God. That reciprocal requirement. God I'm expecting you to give me stuff back because I'm doing this stuff for you. Those are the wrong motives and that is not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about selfless giving. Without any thought for yourself. To give in such a way that you are not asking for anything in return. That's the kind of giving that Jesus is expecting. Now, we, we need to examine our motives here, brothers and sisters. We always need to examine our motives. When Jesus says, give, and it will be given to you, is he saying that the more you give, the more I'm going to give you, and you can expect it, in fact, you can... Demand it, of course that 's not what he is saying. In fact, let 's read what Jesus says about this. If anyone would come after me, let him do what? Deny himself daily, pick up his cross, and follow me. Okay, where is self in there? Where is the idea of i 'm going to give something to God? So that he will give something back to me. It's not there. There's a selflessness that Jesus says. The whole idea about picking up your cross and following him. Is to die to self. To no longer have that focus on selfishness. But to be selfless. So when Jesus says give. He means to give. He just said it. Give without expecting anything in return. And it will be given to you. In other words, what he said in verse 35, great will be your reward. Great will be the reward you have. Probably not financial, but great will be that reward. So what we need to do is we need to see this in the context that it is stated and not allow the fact that it has been twisted and corrupted by so much of evangelical America now transported to the rest of the world It's been so corrupted that we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, Jesus teaches that God blesses his saints. God showers blessings upon his saints. Usually it's not financial, but it can be. Remember what he did for Abraham, okay? Abraham was old and advanced in years, and the Lord blessed Abraham in all things. What about Isaac? Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. What about Job? God took everything Job had away. But when he blessed him, what did he do? He restored it double, twice as much. God showered his blessings. Now, here's the focus. And and, and here's a focus that we need to see, brothers and sisters. (laughs) If... If if you don't have this concept of generous and cheerful giving, if, if that is not part of you, well, it should be, and that's the whole point of this, it is ingrained in your kingdom DNA. It is part of the change that occurs in us when we become Christ's. And there's a a whole different idea of whose resources we have. They're not ours anymore. They belong to the kingdom. So praise God, the more that he brings through, the better it is. I mean, consider that story about the rich young ruler. Remember what Jesus said about that? A man came by and, and, and wanted to follow Jesus and Jesus knew what his idols were. He was very wealthy. So he said, go ahead, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor and follow me. The man couldn't do it. Why? In my mind, because he didn't have kingdom DNA. Because he didn't have that ingrained in his system. That if indeed he had that, if indeed that was part, intrinsically part of who he is, as Jesus is describing here, he'd have sold everything, given it to the poor, and he would have followed Jesus. Feels close to the kingdom, but close doesn't count, folks. Close isn't close enough unless you're hanging grenades and horseshoes, you know. So therefore, the, 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 the story is of, of those that don't really have that DNA. You, you want a story of people who have absolutely, as far as giving is concerned, kingdom DNA? Well, if you were part of our study of Acts on Wednesday night, you'd know this. Go read the very end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 4. And what you will see is a group of people who are just overwhelmed with a new DNA, a spiritual DNA, a whole different way of living. They're selling everything that they have, not under compulsion, not under obligation. They are selling it and they are bringing it to the disciples' feet, not asking for anything in return. And when somebody did ask for something in return, when Ananias sold a piece of property and wanted all the accolades out of that early church community but kept half of it back for himself, he and his wife, Sapphira, what happened? Horrible judgment occurred because they wanted something in return. Now, that's the focus, I think, of what Jesus is saying here. He is saying that God blesses those immensely who have the right spirit as far as giving is concerned. Paul puts it this way, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Well, this kind of flows into what Jesus says next in this last verse, the 38th verse. Just a delightful image. And then a summarization, somebody putting it together. Let's consider that image for just a second in verse 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap you ever been to the store and gotten something and got it home and you read on the outside of the package, some settling might have occurred during shipping? Like a bag of potato chips. You open up a bag of potato chips. What is 50% of it? Air. Okay? Of course, that's what you get for eating potato chips. You shouldn't be doing that anyway. But you get, you're paying for 50% air because there's been some settling. Well, that's kind of the basis of what you have here. Imagine an outdoor market. And imagine that there's no stalls, there's no big containers, that usually what they would do is make themselves a little mound of whatever they're selling on a cloth that's on the ground. And let's say it's corn or grain or even beans or something like that. Now, we all know that some settling will occur if you, if you shake it. And so there are ways that you can measure out something to where it's less than it is at other times. So you go up to this vendor and you say, I want a measure of corn. So they have a measure, whatever it is, just a cup that's already agreed upon. This is the amount that you get. Now, notice what Jesus says. You get a good measure. Okay, when God pours this blessing out upon you, you're going to get a good measure. A measure that is overflowing, well, a a bad measure, a bad vendor, a vendor who's trying to cheat you, well, he'll dip that, he'll he'll fill up that measure, but he he won't fill it to overflowing. There'll be, you know, about a half an inch at, at the top. Well, he's cheating you because it really should come to the top. If you're not paying attention, you're going to get cheated for that amount. But then, if you took that measure and you shake it, You know what happens to it, don't you? After you shake it, you've got a half an inch at the top again. So that amount is the extra that you're not doing. And Jesus even goes beyond that. He says, you shake it and then press it down. Okay? This is a good measure because we're going to pack as much. You can almost get a third again as much into that measure as you could anyway or before. And instead of just filling it to the top, Jesus says, I'm going to overflow it, all right? It's just absolutely to the brim and overflowing. That's the way that God fills the measure that he measures out to you, and he dumps that in your lap. Now, we might not realize that image. It's It's just a great image. In fact, I did it yesterday, okay? I was out in the garden picking tomatoes, and they're just like, All over the place. I mean, we have more tomatoes than we know what to do with. I couldn't carry them in my hand, so I had a T-shirt on. So I took the T-shirt and held it out like this, and I just filled it with tomatoes, okay? Very similar to what happens in Ruth. Let me read you from Ruth. This is what's going on when Boaz is beginning to take a shine to her. It goes like this, and he said, Bring the garments you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it in her, or put it on her, Okay? So in other words, that's what it means. God is going to take his measure. He's going to fill it to the brim, shake it, press it down, fill it up again until it's overflowing, and he's going to dump it in your lap so you can take it and enjoy it. Okay, That's the image that we have here. And then he says, the measure that you measure out will be the measure that you will be measured. In other words, how are you doing? You know, you who have been given so much grace. You who have been extended so much mercy. You who have not been judged even though you should have been judged. You who have not been condemned even though you should have been condemned. You who have been forgiven when you are the one who sinned and you are the one who has failed to give in the way that you should. He still fills you to the brim, presses it, shakes it, and dumps it in your lap. God loves to bless his saints. He loves to bless those who are faithful. But once again, as I read you from Paul completing that statement, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus puts it this way, for the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So this is pretty heavy stuff, actually. They're pretty central to what it means to be a Christian. And so there, there were dozens of different ways that I could have gone as we apply it to ourselves. In fact, I easily could have divided these four imperatives in over four weeks and had a sermon on each one of them. Maybe I will one day. But Luke sort of puts them all together, so I wanted to do the same thing. Now, now I could talk about now about judgment and condemnation and how devastating that is to a church and to us as individuals, how that judgmental, condemnatory spirit is just bitterness and and, and and it's just toxic in our relationships. I could talk about forgiveness and how important forgiveness is in our relationships and if we don't forgive someone, how that person goes away and just has a good time and doesn't think about it twice and here you are carrying the bitter, bitterness and, 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 and uh, a, a grudge around with you. Or I could have talked about Giving. In fact, there was kind of hard for me not to turn this into a stewardship um, sermon. Because some of you give miserably, and some of you don't even give at all. And I just can't understand that. I just cannot comprehend. As much as Scripture says about the resources of the kingdom, and you keep them all for yourself. But I wanted to stay on tasks, so I'm not going to go into any one of those, even though some of you may say I just did. But I want to stay on task and I want to talk about this whole idea of kingdom DNA. And once again, when we are born, we are born sinful and fallen. And intrinsic to our nature, our DNA is at enmity with God. Our DNA wants to be God's ourselves. Our DNA drives us to sin. There's not a single person who's ever been born except Jesus who could possibly say any differently. But when Jesus comes into our heart, when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, that heart of stone is taken out and a new heart is put in with new spiritual DNA. Spiritual DNA that loves God, that desires and wants to please Him, wants to follow what He tells us to do and desires to know about Him, loves His Word, loves this book, loves His people, loves the church, loves everything about it. Now, we, we, we may still have part of that sinful nature. Of course, we're going to have that till we die. But as far as that which dominates us, now we have this new kingdom DNA. And my dear friends, if, if that doesn't describe you in any way, and, and, and what I mean, and, and not just these four things that, that, that Jesus has given us, but if there is no desire to love and to worship and to honor and to glorify God. If there is no mortification over your sins, if it doesn't destroy you, and I don't mean just that you got caught. I mean that the sin just burns a hole in your heart. I can't believe I did that against God. If you don't have this deep desire not to judge or to judge according to God's standards, to condemn if you do according to God's standards, to forgive as you have been forgiven, to give freely and cheerfully and joyfully, knowing that your resources aren't you. If you don't aren't yours, if you don't have any desire to do that, then you need to look and see if you're saved. And and, and, and don't make the mistake that so many people make. Please, don't make the mistake. You say, okay, no, I really don't feel those things. They're not really part of my life, so I'm just going to go to work and I'm going to develop these things. Don't do that. Because you can't buy this. You can't earn it. Okay? It's given. It's a gift given. It's salvation. It's regeneration. The only one who can give you spiritual DNA is Jesus. That's the only one. The only one who can save you is he. So drop to your knees, repent, and ask him and beg him, please, dear Lord, will you save me? And if you do that with your whole heart, I can guarantee you from the authority of Scripture that he will. But not talking about moral absolutes, not talking about uh, um, um, kingdom DNA in that sense, but speaking to Christians as we approach this teaching. As is so often the case there 's a ditch on the right and there 's a ditch on the left, and we need to stay in the middle we, we, we need to walk the narrow uh, line the, the hard road because it, it, if you fall in either ditch it 's not good now the ditch on the right and again i 'm talking to christians now i'm talking to believers, I'm talking to people who actually have spiritual uh, kingdom DNA um, it, it, The ditch on the right is is what some of you may already be thinking. Well, I'm not really good at not judging people. There's a lot of people I've judged. I condemned that person just last week. I've not forgiven my brother-in-law and what he did for me 10 years ago. And I don't give to the church as I should. I guess I'm not saved. I guess I'm not a real believer. Now, you need to be careful there. Because when I talk about a spiritual, a kingdom DNA, I'm not saying that the old man, the old woman just goes away. You're not perfect, folks. You still need forgiveness. You still need the Lord. You still are going to struggle with this. When I say, uh, you know, to, to be introspective about whether you have that DNA or not, it is to, is to see what the condition of your heart is. You know, people who uh, don't care about the Lord, they, they don't think about the Lord. You know, they just think about the way they can get around things. They, they don't worry about their sins. They're not mortified. They're not convicted over their sinfulness. So don't fall into that ditch and, and, and think that because you're not perfect, you're not saved. Because the devil would like you to be in that ditch. Because you're not, you're not capable of doing much for the kingdom when you're in that ditch. Okay? So you don't want to fall in the ditch on the right. But as soon as I say that, I'm going to quickly say don't fall into the ditch on the left either. Because the ditch on the left is when you take it all for granted. And you say, oh, I'm saved. I'm forgiven. I don't need to care about any of this stuff. You know, so I'm judgmental. Jesus will forgive me. Well, that's not, the, that, that's not the plan. You see, once again, you're in a ditch and you're not going to be effective for the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus wants you doing is on the narrow road towards the Zion that we talked about earlier and being effective for the kingdom of God. So how do you go about that? Let me just finish it and end it up with this. I want to end up the same way we ended up last week because it's basically the same exact idea what Jesus has just shared for us last week remember we talked about our motives and how do we get right motives what are the right motives that we are supposed to have and the right motives are that we are to glorify God and fully enjoy him forever that's the right motive is it what we do we do for the glory of God well now Jesus has told us how to glorify God he's given us four examples about not only how to glorify God, but how to reap amazing benefits and rewards in the process. Do you want to glorify God? Then don't be judgmental. Because what you're doing is you're reflecting, and I don't mean this blasphemously, please. I know God doesn't have any DNA, but you're reflecting God's DNA in a sense. Jesus, when he became a human being, he had DNA, and he was the perfect reflection, the radiance of God's glory, the exact image of his nature, of his character, So therefore, when you are not judgmental and you judge with good judgments, guess what? You bring glory to God. When you don't, you don't bring glory to God. If you're not condemnatory, you bring glory to God. If you forgive the way that we've been forgiven, we have been given such great uh, forgiveness. And when you forgive that way, when you are kind to the ungrateful and the evil, you bring glory to God. And when you give... Whether it's your money, whether it's your self, whether it's your, 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 your talents, whether it's your life. When you give to the Lord, you bring glory to Him. And that's where it ought to end, folks. That's your motive. That's your reward. God is glorified by your life. And if there's any reward to come from that, let God do it. Because He's the one that does it. He's going to do it much better than you can possibly imagine. So don't go after the reward. Do it for the glory of God, because that is intrinsic in your kingdom DNA. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, how wonderful your, your, your teaching to us is, how wonderful your book is. Not only do you tell us what to do, you tell us how to do it. And you give us examples and illustrations all the way through it. You tell us what you are pleased with, and you tell us what you're not pleased with. Help us to take this oh so seriously, oh so seriously, that we recognize that the whole idea of carnal Christianity is absolutely squashed by this, that that there are certain traits that you have placed in us. The devil wants us to fall into either one of those ditches. Lord, keep us out of those ditches and keep us on the straight path so that we can indeed do what we were made to do for the rest of our lives, bring glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.